0: Hey everybody, happy new year, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Now, each and every year, we do our annual Blister Best of Awards, but the time is right to think about not just the past year, but the entire past decade. And so, when considering the entire past decade, what was the most influential ski, ski boot, and ski binding? What was the best ski of the decade? What were the biggest trends? And what was the single best product of the decade? In this episode, we discuss all of this and more. And in the comments section in the show notes to this episode on our website, We'd love to hear what you think was the most influential or best gear of the decade, and why. And as you'll hear me say at the end of this episode, we are going to be rolling out these same awards on the snowboard and apparel side of things. We will be posting a write-up on the website this week where we will be revealing the answers of some of our other Blister reviewers. And we've got a few other related topics up our sleeves, so stay tuned. But for now, we're going to kick off this whole Best Gear of the Decade conversation with me, Luke Kappa, and Sam Shaheen. This is definitely a fun one, so let's go ahead and get right to it. Okay guys, well, here we are uh, in Blister HQ with a fairly monumental task in front of us. I got this bright idea that while we do spend a lot of time with our buyer's guides, you know, going through and summing up some of our favorite bits of gear in a given season, turns out this is actually the exact right time to be thinking about an entire decade's worth of gear. In terms of skis, first, I wanna break this down uh, into kind of two questions first one is, what is the most influential ski of the past decade? And then the second question is, what is the best ski of the past decade? So, you know, simple. (laughs) And again, um, while we have been thinking a lot about these questions, we really are, in this case, equally interested in hearing from everyone listening to this your best cases for maybe some different products than what we've come up with. So man, it seems colossal, but, uh, most influential ski of the decade. First of all, I guess I was thinking about the previous decade and I was thinking that McConkey's spatula would probably need to be the answer to the, preceding decade yeah
1: I think the spatula whenever we're talking about any sort of influential ski that's the first ski I think of so I'd say for sure most influential for the previous decade and I mean up there top five most influential skis of all time
2: but I I would also say though that even though the spatula came out in the previous decade most of its influence wasn't probably felt in the industry, especially in like skis Actually, people actually buy until this decade. So in that sense, I think one could make the argument that the spatula is still an, an, still an incredibly influential ski and making a case for being the most influential ski of the previous, like of the 20 teens as well. I think the
0: big sea change is that Basically, I would argue we started doing rocker, camber rocker profiles, right? Really increasing the versatility. Um, nobody was really positioning the spatula as an all-mountain tool. And so I think in that sense, Sam, that's, while well, I think if we were going to pick a single ski of the last 20 years, the spatula is probably still a very legitimate answer. This is where I think I would want to create a bit of separation for the last 10 years for the increase in all mountain performance and versatility that we've seen since the spatula.
2: Right. And, and I, I agree with that completely. I think, um, you know, the spatula took design parameters that we see in pr- pretty much every single ski today to the extreme, right? It was the extreme yep. version of camber, is the most extreme version of taper. Um, and since then ski companies have learned, I think have figured out how to dial these back and make a more versatile ski out of it. Um, but without, with, without the spatula, I'm not sure we'd
1: be where we are today for sure. Mm Yeah.
0: Okay. You want this Luke?
1: Uh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so people are going to have to forgive my ignorance. Um, I wasn't admittedly, I wasn't like super on top of the ski industry way back in 2010. Um, so I'm sure plenty of other people will disagree with some of my picks, and we'd love to hear about them. But for me, thinking about the most influential ski, I'm thinking about, like we said with the spatula, like it influenced other skis and like a lot of other skis. And for me, I think of the Rossignol Soul 7, um, the first iteration. woo, woo, yep. Yeah, <laughs> expected that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when it came out, I don't think there were any skis with see-through tips at the time, which now for some reason we see all over the place. <laughs> um, it was also a quite light ski that they were marketing for inbounds use. Um, it had a lot of taper and was very much like the epitome of like a modern tapered shape, but kind of kickstarted or laid the groundwork for so many skis today that are like, 2,000 grams for a 188-ish. And, I mean, if you were skiing back around 2015 or afterwards, and still today, you see Soul 7s everywhere. Um, So that's my pick.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Soul 7's on my list, too. Um, I kind of lumped three skis into the same category as the Soul 7, the Armada JJ and the DPS Whaler 112 all kind of use this idea of what we used to call back in 2010 five point side cuts mm-hmm. um now we just call it taper and actually there was actually back in 2010 i don't know if some listeners might remember this there was a whole big like lawsuit controversy between armada and rosignol on this whole idea of taper and uh, on the soul 7 and jj where they had you know i can't remember which company patented it i don't know you can go dig in and relive those days but the bottom line is those skis for me all kind of had the same idea of lots of rocker in the tip and tail camber underfoot but most importantly taper you know taper was an idea that i think really really kind of blossomed in this in the uh 20 teens so those 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 three skis for me are kind of equivalent
0: interesting yeah i actually also had the soul 7 (laughs) um and i think luke articulated it really well actually um what I actually had written, though, was kind of the Rosignal S7, which then sort of, you know, we then got from the S7, the Soul 7. And so just from a kind of chronological point of view, I would actually, Sam, of your three... Sam, you had the the JJ, the DPS Whaler 112, and what was your third? Soul 7. And Soul 7. So I would knock the Whaler 112 out of there just strictly for chronological reasons, because I really think of the Whaler 112 as kind of DPS's answer to the Razi S7. So I think, you know, while that, obviously that ski, I mean, has gone on and certainly been a defining ski of the last 10 years, I guess if we were trying to figure out how to whittle things down or get a little more precise, I think that move from the S7 to the Soul 7 was kind of a really defining factor. And so I guess if we were doing kind of a podium here, I think it's right to keep the JJ in here. I would definitely want to keep the Soul 7. And then there is a bit of a story maybe that could be told about the Razi the original Razzi S7, which is a wider ski, right? And, and I think it is, again, because of the all-mountain versatility and just all-around versatility of the Soul 7 at a narrower width that um, probably, it's why I gave it the top spot. There's more agreement there than I thought we might have. I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody want to submit any other, and again, we're just sticking to most influential. The other, the other ski I had written down was mantra
2: question mark. I think that the mantra, I mean, obviously went through a lot of iterations yep. in the decade and some of those iterations were more influential than others. But the mantra was sort of the other end of the Soul 7 spectrum, mm-hmm. right? Like the Soul 7 was this lightweight, tapered, easy, versatile ski. And the mantra was like, well, actually let's put metal in it, make it heavier and have a ski that can plow a bit more. And uh, the probably the reverse camber, the stretch of reverse camber mantra in the middle of the decade um, was kind of shockingly unique. And that's why I put the question mark there, unique for how popular it was, because it didn't really seem to like, there weren't a ton of copies of that ski Mm -hmm. out there, but it was incredibly popular and that has
0: influence in and of itself. So I'm I'm a little on the fence about that one. Yeah, and I, I think it's great to bring up the mantra. I certainly thought about it a lot, but mostly crossed it off the list. Uh, Because we have seen a number of iterations of it. So I wasn't quite sure what to do with that. Um, And yet it's right, I think, to bring that in because the mantra, frankly, I mean, it's kind of been defining if you think about 2000 to the present day, that has, would there be any other series of ski that you would argue defined all, like the all-mountain category then the different iterations of the mantra, I wouldn't be quick to nominate something ahead of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, the bona fide, Blizzard Bonafide is the only one I think of, but I feel like it's not quite as, I mean, it's, it's not as obvious to me as the mantra.
0: I feel like the Bonafide was an, a response to the mantra. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I I'm happy with that. And I think it's good to like, give a nod to the mantra um, because a lot of the industry was scrambling to to answer to mm-hmm. answer it. Um, yeah
1: I think one more thing to add Sam mentioned this but like it's interesting to me that we talk about the Soul 7 and talk about how many copies of the ski came about and like how many people were trying to mimic that design. But when we talk about like the reverse Camber mantra, we didn't see a whole lot of reverse camber 100 ish underfoot skis out there, which is just kind of an interesting um, comparison to the Soul Seven, where we saw a lot of like, I mean, you could call like copies of the ski. Um, but and yet the mantra still kind of remained like the reference point for a lot of people.
0: Yeah. And I guess, I mean, one thing at the time, it was a pretty wild thing when vocal went full reverse mm-hmm. on a ski that narrow. So, I think it's important to remember kind of that moment. That was like, whoa, what are they doing here? Granted, probably, well, this is tough. Probably my favorite mantra was the preceding the M4, the full rocker. Um, it was a fairly traditional shape, but that thing was just awesome in techie, steep, wind scoured stuff. I loved that ski. Uh, So I guess that was the M3. And then we all think the M5 is just a precision, gorgeous instrument. Let's move on. Best ski of the decade. Sam? Oh, man. (laughs) The funny thing is the ski
2: that I have in my first slot is a ski that I've hardly ever skied, unfortunately. Okay. Um but I think it would be remiss not to be in anyone's top three, and that's the uh, Nordica Enforcer 100. Yep.
1: Did, I is, think wait, wait, wait. Not only-
0: S- Sam, wait. Luke, is that, was that your top spot?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll go into more detail later, but it was it was on high on my list.
0: Guess what? That was also my top spot. <laughs> Un- unanimity. Okay, Sam, back to you.
2: Wow, we agreed on the Soul 7 and the Enforcer. Yep. I'm Weird. blown away. This is the weirdest thing. But no, day. I mean, that... <laughs> That ski though is amazing for how long it has gone unchanged and has still been relevant and really competitive in a, in the class of skis where there are more more options than any other class in the market. You know that hundred millimeter underfoot all mountain ski, every company makes one, um, and that Enforcer's been relevant pretty much since it came out. And I'm not sure the exact year. Was it 2013, 2012?
1: That ski came out. I think it was later. Like fourteen, fifteen,
0: 15, yeah. maybe? 14, okay. Yeah, so the reason that I gave that Enforcer 100 the top spot did have a lot to do with the fact that it literally was just left alone. Now, interestingly, Nordica is now announcing that they have a totally redesigned Enforcer 100. Nordica, apologies, I don't believe you. Um, when you call it totally redesigned, I I would go with, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm going to go with subtly tweaked, uh, maybe as being a bit closer to the truth than totally redesigned. I pray to God you haven't totally (laughs) redesigned it, but that this ski continues to get our top recommendation to many hundreds of blister members in all different parts of the world looking for a particular ski. And and we, it's our job is to just figure out what they're looking for and what's going to work best for them. And um, this ski that's been unchanged for five years or so continues to get, well, continues to be our answer to the question like this is going to be the best ski for you right now. I also mentioned this repeatedly over the years that Enforcer 100 is a ski that I would be happy putting a heavier beginner on. And yet, lots of advanced and expert skiers get along quite well with that ski too. So just that broad performance envelope, in addition to that this ski has been so good and unchanged for this long, it actually was a fairly easy pick for me let's keep it moving i'm guessing that each of you had sort of some second and place and third place i actually had five places so why don't we (laughs) why don't we just kind of go round table for our second picks etc luke what was your second option
1: um so the enforcer was like the safe pick for me i mean you just listed all the reasons why like works for so many people, has been so relevant and so good compared to the competition over many years and even spawned, like, several other really good skis in the Enforcer and Santa Ana lineup. But for me, I mean, I'm thinking mostly about the skis that I've actually skied over the past few years, um, which has been a couple hundred, and the ski that has just blown me away the most is the Rossignol Black Ops 118. It's, I mean, like... I think there's tons of skis that could be called better skis than that, especially because it's so wide and fairly niche. But just in terms of me loving every single aspect of it, it's pretty rare for that, um, for me in a ski.
0: So that's, that's my second choice. Yeah. Great ski. Um, I, I didn't put it on the list just because it's we just started skiing it last season. Mm-hmm. And so like, it felt like a little bit of recency bias, but yeah, I agree sure. with everything you said. Sam, what's your second?
2: Yeah, it's going to be kind of beating a dead horse here, but I said soul seven for the second. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, just because I think it's a ski that so many people can get on with, like whether you're, it's your first day on skis or you're a seasoned expert. Like there's, there's something for almost everyone in that ski. And it's not, it's it, it's not like everyone's preference. It is still light and all that stuff, but um so many people have had great days
0: on that ski in the last 10 years. Yeah. I didn't have it in my top 5 because of the polarizing element, right? Now, to its credit, I don't want to put an AT binding on an Enforcer 100 whereas like I would happily ski the Soul 7 as my backcountry ski, like all things considered, but I think you're going to get a number of people that for an inbound ski, they would just be like, I hate this thing. It is the opposite of the style of ski I like, whereas I actually think the Enforcer 100, you'd have fewer people being like, I just can't have a fun time on the mountain on this So I kind of docked, maybe unfairly, I docked the Soul 7 because I just think it is going to be a bit more polarizing.
2: Yeah, and I think definitely more polarizing on the expert end of things, but um, if Luke gets to pick the Black Ops 118... Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no. You're allowed to
0: pick whatever you want. So, Um, Okay, so Soul 7 from Sam. My second pick is... This unfortunately needs a little bit of caveating, but I did go with the Moment Bibby slash Blister Pro. That's another ski until Luke Jacobson, you know, blew it recently. That ski would have been seriously unchanged literally through the entire decade. I mean, okay, okay, take it back. Subtle construction tweaks
1: And the period of time where it was totally changed. Was that two seasons? Oh, yeah, but I... I, You just just black out those years. Yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah. you're right. I did just completely repress that. (laughs) When I've been able to keep Luke Jacobson from screwing up that ski, let's put it that way, um, that's been amazing. And I would today, I mean, literally, I still have my pair from like 2009. And like, I could go happily, actually more happily ski that version than the current lighter 190. So I think the shape of that ski, the suspension of that ski, that thing has just been money for a decade. And um, Luke, you and Sam love the current 184. Mm -hmm. And people who wanted a little bit lighter of a ski, as I've tried to say and be clear on, probably like the current version more. Um, But anyway... Props to, to Moment for dialing in that, in particular, that shape, rocker profile, suspension, etc. And we'll just quibble about whether the lighter one or the heavier one's better. Yeah.
2: Well, and, and I mean, to Moment's credit to the the fact that the ski performed amazingly when it was heavy and still performs amazingly when it's light. I mean, it's it's a bit of a different ski for sure now than it used to be because it lost a decent chunk of weight, but I mean, I loved that 184 of the original version and I love the 184 of the, of the current version. Mm-hmm. I think that's a testament to just how money that shape actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like,
0: like that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Luke, what got your third pick?
1: Um, so this ski, unlike the Black Ops, I have not spent much time on it, but I feel like we have to include the Rosignol Sickle um, because my... Thinking about this, I was thinking about my favorite skis and then the skis that we get asked the most about in terms of like, hey, what's the replacement for this ski? And there's another ski that you're probably going to talk about, but we get we get the what's the current sickle question all the time. And unfortunately, I've only skied the shorter 180, 181, whatever it is, and only got like a day on it. It was super fun, but... I think if I skied a 187 I think was the longer length at one point something like that um I would love that ski and I think it's just a testament to how good it was that we get so many questions about it um so I feel like we have to include that That's
0: a that's a great pick. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I had not I had forgotten about the sickle in mm-hmm. doing this list and I think that's a good one Luke. Sam, what do you got? Uh so third place for me was uh kind of a toss
2: up between Blister Pro, Wildcat Bibby and um, the Mantra. I ended up going with Mantra because every iteration of that ski has been really good in one respect or another. And especially the current version, the M5, I think I would say is the most well-refined version of the Mantra um, we've seen. And that ski is just, that ski is just great. Every day I'm out on that ski, I'm 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 a, I'm a happy camper.
0: <laughs> My third pick, and I I actually really think this could, for the right skier, like definitively win best ski of the decade. The line, Mister Pollard's opus. Hmm.
1: I did not expect that. Wow. And
0: of left field. <laughs> well, and so this is, I want to take a second here and give a shout out to Jason Hutchins. So, interestingly, we just mentioned two of Jason's all time favorite skis Luke talking about the Sickle and then the Opus. But I used to get a lot of ski days with Jason, and he would just be like, I can ski the Opus every day all the time, regardless of condition, don't care. And he would say that actually kind of about both the sickle and the opus. But um, I spent way too many hours listening to Jason talk about in great detail why this ski was just perfect. And it was really fun, actually, that when I recently had a conversation with Eric Pollard, he singled out, the Opus, I asked him, I mean, of all the skis you've worked on, what ski do you feel like nailed it? And he's like the Opus, which just triggered me back or, you know, reminded me of all these conversations with Jason. So I think that ski deserves to be here.
1: Okay. Well, I, I wish I had skied that. I feel like I would have loved it. I think you would have loved it. Yeah.
0: Um, I think this
1: is the last one I feel like I need to include, but the metal katana, um, Interesting. I feel like that along with the sickle, that's something I just get asked about all the time and there's not really something that exists that replaces it right now. Um, but we still get the question all the time and that's a ski that many people are extremely passionate about.
0: Sam, did you go to a fourth place? You know, I didn't, but I guess I have a
2: comment on the Opus and the metal katana, um just in general and this maybe this is more of a just a question or something to think about but you know like the ski industry is a really sort of broad place and we we tend to interact with people who are die hard gearheads and people who are absolutely obsessed and live and breathe skiing um i doubt if you asked like a more casual skier if they could even like know that the katana had metal in it, or even changed, or anything like that. To like, I, I guess the point I'm 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 trying to make is: are our picks for best ski of the decade like skewed towards more expert skis than than maybe a more generalist would have?
0: Maybe, but I think you know the ski that won that we had, you know we were unanimous in our choice, the Enforcer 100. An important part of the reason why I gave it the first spot was because I think, get the right length of the ski, and I am very comfortable putting newbies on it. Um, Granted, I always caveat, like heavier is gonna be better. Like super light people on the Enforcer, it, it maybe wouldn't be the first choice, but just as a broad generalization, I really do like that ski, kind of regardless of ability level. Um, but I, Sam, I think in the subsequent skis we're talking about, I definitely do think we're skewing toward a more advanced skier.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think like, I mean, Sam mentioned the Soul 7, which you could put just about anyone on. Yeah. Um, on that note, the line Sick Day 104, I think, is an honorable mention at least. Hmm. Like that mm-hmm. ski, I feel like almost everyone who likes the Soul 7 would like the Sick Day. Some would like it better. I like it better. Um, And just like light, very forgiving, very easy ski, but I love skiing it. Um, And it's like, I think, the best 50 50 ski I've ever used.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great inclusion. It's yeah. an excellent ski. My fourth and fifth, I'll just kind of do them together. Fisher the Curve. I would maybe rank it higher if I could stay clear on the freaking name of the damn ski. (laughs) It's now (laughs) called
1: the Curve Booster.
0: Guys, seriously, Fisher, Fisher, God bless you. Stop with the weird name stuff.
1: I think I I heard an explanation for that stuff (sighs) because apparently they want to market like people recognize like the curve as fisher's on piste and race series so they for some reason call everything the curve and like they clearly they could be much better in terms of differentiating the names like the ski we're talking about is now called fisher rc4 the curve curve booster and there's a million different curves
0: um fisher but anyway (laughs) i love that ski and you're denigrating it with that name. That's the dumbest name I've ever heard. What's it called?
1: RC4, the Curve Curve Booster. That's
0: Cur-curve? like Curve Booster. That's like a Saturday Night Live skit. Yeah. And I just like how the curves are directly next to each other in the name. So you just have to say it twice. Twice is nice. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to actually knock that ski to fifth <laughs> because of the stupid name, um, even though it's an amazing ski. And... um. Yeah, but that name's got to go. And just simplify, clarify. Feel free to send us a note. Fisher will help. Call we- it
1: Fisher RC4, the curve, the good one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, <laughs> moving on. Um, the ski that I had in fifth place until we started talking about names, uh, it is now in fourth place with the curve at number five, the head I Titan. <laughs> Again, I've kind of talked about why I think that is just such an interesting tool. And I think it's a ski that experts will just have a great time carving. But I also love that I really still feel like, and I mean this as a total compliment, it's like a cheater carver, or it's like training wheels. So that you have, again, it's kind of that performance envelope. I think Experts will just have a blast carving the hell out of that ski. But for someone who's trying to get accustomed to higher edge angles and tipping over a ski, I still think it's one of my favorite tools out there for helping someone get that feel. You know, when we see all of these skis with heavily tapered tips and tails, those skis just don't inspire confidence. They're easy to slide around and shush around, but in terms of really learning, oh, that's what it feels like to get a ski on edge, um, I still love the Titan for that. And thanks for not having a totally stupid name, head. <laughs> like I understand. Uh, okay. It's a little dumb. <laughs> it's a little dumb. Super okay, the, the i, period. And
1: the Eyes is lowercase.
0: And, okay, yeah. that is dumb. <laughs> it is dumb. It's a lot less dumb than what we just talked about. I think like, the carving ski category naming scheme is
1: confusing across the board. Yeah. Like, Blizzard makes a billion Firebirds. Like, yeah. Atomic makes a billion Redsters. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you, if you, like, grow up on the racing scene, you know that, like, these certain acronyms stand for, like, Slalom, GS, and all that, but it's, uh, I, I always have a hard time when, like, someone tells me, like, oh, I have, I have a Firebird.
0: I'm like, which out of the yeah. 20 do you have? Yeah. <laughs> and they're all
1: totally different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway.
0: Okay, moving on. Time to talk about ski boots. What do you guys have for the most influential ski boot of the decade?
2: For me, the category of alpine ski boots is pretty mature. Um, Mm. But the category of alpine touring boots saw unbelievable strides made in the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, we basically went from no Alpine touring boots that were like skiable to a slew of incredibly good boots with excellent range of motion and downhill performance that come in at incredibly low weights. And I think the boot that kind of t- defined the progression of that category is the Scarpa Mistrale series. So I think that's, that's my most influential boot of the decade. Or that's that's a couple boots, I guess. So maybe that's cheating. But
0: well, so do you want to specify? No, because
2: I think I think that the boot that you choose in that series is dependent on like your skiing ability, basically. Mm-hmm. So I I think the series this the series like created the ideas that pushed the category forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, for me, it was either the Mistralis or the Solomon Mountain Lab, the original one because um, both of those boots seem to they seem to be some of the earliest options that were light and walked well enough for pretty long tours but skied very similarly to an alpine boot for the time like for how light they were, how much range of motion they offered they skied really well. Um, and I feel like those kind of paved the way for all of the awesome touring boots we see now.
0: So I had, the Mountain Lab on my list as well, but a boot that I actually never spent any time in, I feel like, well, here's the question. I mean, I feel like if we're going to talk about the Mountain Lab, Sam already made a case for the Maestrale series. Does anybody want to make the case that the Dinafit Vulcan, Mm. if we're going to talk about a boot, like it's coming in, I mean, I had no interest in that boot. I'm not switching, swapping tongues, and all that. But Sam, you didn't. You, you're not tempted to go Vulcan over Mountain Lab.
2: I mean, for a boot to be influential, I think people have to actually ski it. And um, that Vulcan had such a narrow toe box that it couldn't yep. work with a lot of people. And for a touring boot, that's just that's just like why. I mean, you sit around in it in the snow all day long. Um, for a boot that had like such o- such an obvious flaw to it, I have a hard time giving it like the accolade of most influential.
1: Huh. Yeah, I never I didn't know about the issue with the fit. I've never I never put on a Vulcan. I see the of Fit Mercury, the softer version, was my first ever touring boot. Um and it permanently damaged one of my toes. <laughs> so maybe that makes <laughs> <Sick>. sense. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, anyway, still living with that. But yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten about the Vulcan, but now that I think about it, I still see people referencing that boot all the time. Yeah. I don't know why I have tried them on, and even with the Mercury, I hated the flex pattern. Um, but it was a really stiff touring boot. And so, yeah, I think I don't I don't have a good idea of the timeline on those three boots. I, the Vulcan came out before the Mountain Lab, I think. Yeah. I don't know where the Mistralian Vulcan lined up, but...
2: I think the Mistralia came out before the Mountain Lab too. I don't know. I think the the Vulcan was right in there with the first gen Mistralia. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think all three of those boots could be argued for this title.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I remember when I first got in that Mountain Lab and I think I wrote this in my original review, I was like, this is the first touring boot I don't hate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think there's questions about who got there kind of first and whatever. But I think I'm willing to, we've got to mention that mountain lab because I do feel like it kind of changed the game in terms of like what we could expect performance wise. And I, I will say first downhill performance and mm-hmm. then maybe second, yeah. you know, uphill performance of a touring boot. And since that Mountain Lab came out, we've seen, I think, a kind of a proliferation um, yeah. and like the, the bar got raised and the industry was has done a great job in kind of stepping up their game. But um, mm-hmm.
2: Well, and one other thing too that I would say from the influential perspective of the Mistrali is like the Mistrali came out, then all of a sudden a bunch of companies came out with boots that looked like the Mistrali and then the Mistrali got updated and then all of a sudden a bunch of companies came out with boots that looked like the updated Mistrali. Um, you know, like for instance, a lot of the high performing boots on the market right now have this prison shank style walk mode, as we like to call it. Yep, you know, yep. the the zero G, the Hawks. I'm sure I'm I'm sure I'm missing some, but um I think influence can be measured in how much people copy you. And from that, I'm not sure an, an argument could be made for a boot that isn't the Mistrali. Okay. Hmm. I like it, yeah, Sam.
1: Fair point. Yeah, I think if we're if we're If we want to narrow it down to just alpine boots, I would say the Atomic Hawks Ultra, the original one, because it ushered in what we're seeing now, which is many companies across the board making specifically lightweight alpine boots with no walk modes. Um, It was, I think, the first of its kind. Like no one else is really marketing their alpine boots as being really light. And it, it, it was and is really light. And then we saw K2, we saw Nordica, we saw Salomon. Um, I'm sure I'm missing some, but a lot of brands now are making specifically... Head? Yo, yeah, Head's making a crazy lightweight one. Um, so everyone almost is doing lightweight Alpine boots without walk modes that are just supposed to be, I guess, easier on your legs and feet. Um, yeah. But some
0: of them still ski really well. Well, that boot, the original skied really well. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's not a super heavy kind of recreational race boot like a Head Raptor, but and and honestly, I've been thinking about this. I really want to get into the current and like the the newest iteration of the of the Hawks mm-hmm. Ultra. Um, you know, with our conversations with Matt Manzer, he is claiming that some of those updates from the original that I skied and reviewed are pretty significant updates mm-hmm. and um I'm I'm ready to revisit that boot. Yeah. So and I'm Dylan
1: skis that as his everyday inbounds boot.
0: Yeah. So yeah, very good I think to to mention that that boot. I wanted to the boot I'd written down, I think Luke actually makes a better case in terms of influential with the Hawks, but I wanted to give a shout out to the Lang RX 120 and 130. I just feel like that has been kind of a a reference. It's not going the lightweight route. It's not a heat moldable shell. It's just kind of held it down for the decade, and when you started putting that rubber sole, a little bit more of a free ride boot, you know, so moving away from just a plastic sole Lang RS kind of race boot, um, or like a Nordica Doberman, another boot that has its passionate followers that lang rx 120 and 130 uh from a fit point of view with its rubber soles and the rest was just a boot that would work for a whole lot of people i guess i'm saying it was kind of the nordica enforcer 100 of ski boots (laughs) and i think they deserve credit for that and um yeah so that's i wanted to give a shout out to the rx We're gonna keep it moving. Let's talk about ski bindings. So Sam, you said that you felt like we were in a pretty mature period when it came to alpine ski boots. Well, I'd argue we're in an even more mature period when it comes to alpine bindings. So that said, does anybody wanna talk about any specific alpine bindings that have been most influential for this past decade?
1: Um, for me, there's not as much a single binding that stands out, but the trend of multi-norm compatible bindings or MNC bindings. Um, I think that originally started on the uh, on like the first frame binding, so like Marker Duke and Solomon Guardian. Um, but then I think Solomon was the first one to put out a regular Alpine binding that was compatible with uh, Touring Souls, and I think that was the Warden. Um, and then nowadays... I think every major, well, Solomon Atomic, Marker, and Tyrolia all make MNC bindings now. Now that, like, what we just talked about, touring boots have gotten a lot better. People are skiing them in the resort more often. So that's the only thing I have to say about Alpine bindings.
0: Sam? Yeah,
2: I mean, I would agree. I would, I blame the whole MNC thing on, um, grip walk and walk to ride in, in a sense too, which it just like is something that makes me upset. So
0: I'm not sure I really wanna talk more about that. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, that's been a fiasco.
0: Um, okay, yeah, and I, I don't have a specific standout Alpine binding to mention here. So I think the, the multi norms is the, the right way to kind of address that. Um, do we wanna talk about a most influential touring binding? Or AT binding.
2: Yeah, you know. So I had written down the Solomon shift, but I. The more I think about it, I'm kind of wanting to pull back from that because the Solomon shift was really, really came about because of the influence of other bindings, right? And I think specifically looking at the Dinafit Beast and the Marker Duke, um, and you could probably argue. I think both of those probably were slightly pre two thousand ten. But the idea that they that they encapsulated this idea of a burly touring binding yep. that was gonna mm-hmm. give the downhill performance of an alpine binding while still being able to go uphill has sort of like, you know, come to a point with the shift where we actually have it at a reasonable weight and, you know, full to sort of certified release values and blah, blah, blah. So I think, yeah, one of those early on um, burly touring bindings might be the most influential because in 2010, pin bindings were basically already where they are at now you know they were invented 30 years ago so mm-hmm.
0: so okay but to sam i think you're thinking about this exactly the right way but to push you on duke versus beast i think the duke was a better binding but i think the beast was probably more influential that notion of yeah pins mm-hmm. and Burl, yeah i hated that binding so much but um yep. and that's but I, I still think you might not be wrong and I had written down the kingpin, and I think it's not obvious that that's the right answer to when you were talking about influence. I mean, the beast was a binding that not that many people got in, and yet I think it's right to say that it is the predecessor of a kingpin And the kingpin was just, frankly, I think a much better binding that then a lot of people did get into. And it started being like, wow, you can actually get really good performance out of a quote-unquote AT binding. So I don't know what I'm saying here because I can't necessarily defend an answer of the kingpin as mm-hmm. the most influential binding, but it's a little bit in that mountain lab conversation where I it it kind of turned the lights on. Yeah, yeah, I
1: think I'd agree with Sam in that like yeah, Beast and Duke get the title for most influential. Um, if I had to make a prediction, I think the Solomon shift might be the most influential binding of the next decade, but we'll see.
0: No predictions this episode. That's for a coming episode. So did we just end up with an answer or are we keeping it fuzzy? I I think we decided on Beast. I think we decided I was right. Yeah, I think Beast. Yeah. I don't think we decided you were right, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Just for the record. (laughs) Um, My God, I'm giving Beast the most influential. That makes me feel bad, but uh, it might be true. So
1: look how far we've come.
0: Look how far we've come. Thank you, every other company
1: thank you hoji
0: <laughs> throwing shade <laughs> throwing a little shade okay best binding of the decade so this one was hard for me to
2: pick honestly and i'm gonna go with one that probably neither of you guys are thinking of and that's the g3 ion slash g3 Z. they're basically <laughs> the same binding i guess but um the Z still has a, probably a few years to prove itself before it really has that title of best um but I think what G3 did with this these bindings is they, to as close as we have come yet, perfected the concept of pin tech bindings. Agreed. They're so easy to use. They're burly, easy to step into. They ski pretty damn well. And uh, I mean, I just, I never have problems with them. Yep. And that, that's something that I can't say about almost any other pin binding.
0: Yep. I love that answer. I love the ION. I mean, like I'm not... I don't ski tech bindings. I mean, my position on this is fairly well known, but like that is, I like what you say about it always works. It's still got my favorite climbing risers of any eight touring binding I've ever used. Um, it's a extremely well executed and and perhaps the best executed version of a tech binding, which is, I think is exactly what you sort of just said, Sam.
2: Yeah, yeah, the only other—I mean, for our frequent readers who know how much I like the ATK Raider mm-hmm. slash yeah. Hagen Core, um, that's also a great binding. But the reasons why I love that binding so much aren't because it's so well refined; it's because there's a few features on it that work so well. Uh huh. Um, namely, the, the 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 like solid ski boot interface is unmatched. But for a binding as a whole, I think the Ion and the Z are are better bindings.
0: I like this notion of. That we're, and I haven't skied the Zed, just the Ion, so I don't, I don't want to say more than I know. But in calling, giving the award to the Ion in the sense that it's the most refined Mm -hmm. binding of that type, Mm -hmm. I like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, there are so many bindings that I could potentially put here, but it's interesting you guys talking about the Ion, like so refined. All the other bindings I'm thinking of, I have at least one or two issues with. So like, I mean, this shift was pretty revolutionary. Just came out, what, last year?
0: I, two years ago? Two years ago.
1: Um, and that's like, yeah, basically a whole new category, but it has its quirks. Like, I want a high riser. Like, they're gonna keep telling me that I need to just set better skin tracks, but sometimes I don't, and sometimes I don't have a choice. And its brakes can be finicky, its setup can be finicky, like, the Tecton, probably my favorite, like, what I'd call free ride touring binding right now, but it's all made of plastic. I've had, I've broken a heel piece on one of them, and, like, the toe piece can be finicky to step into. I know Sam doesn't like it very much, and then, like, the kin pain is great, but it's pretty heavy, and it had tons of issues when it first got rolled out with, like, the toe pins falling out, so... Um, I don't have a clear winner, I don't think.
0: While I, you know, stand by this, like we just gave the eye on the kind of most refined, I definitely want to have the shift in here as just the absolute biggest game changer. Um, and in terms of game changers, it wins the decade. In my opinion, I don't, I don't think it's close. So it's... In terms of influence, we've talked about the Duke, we've talked about the Beast, we've seen this progression, but in this progression of AT bindings, that shift just changed the game where we're going from pins up to full DIN binding on the downhill. I just think even if there are some issues and even if, that, if it will be good if, to see the shift refined, that's truly the definition of game-changing I don't see how you can work your way around that. Yeah, I mean,
2: I I, I was real close to giving shift best too, but when I think of best, like the best product, how can the best product have like some pretty glaring
0: faults? See, and, and from my point of view, like I just got done raving about the ION, but I don't ski it. Mm-hmm. I ski the shift and I, I don't often ski it in bounds. That's my touring binding. And I guess I'm the luckiest person in the world, but I've still had zero issues with any of our multiple pairs of shift bindings. And I'm not a wuss, so I don't need the higher climbing riser like you guys. <laughs> you know, I, it's weird. I feel like I have to apologize that I haven't had any personal issues with the binding. I still love that thing. And I don't frankly want to ski in a marker kingpin and go back to a tech toe world. I know lots of people are happy doing that. I'm, I don't want to do that anymore, and I don't have to, thanks to the shift. And well well argued. <laughs> We've presented another question here. What was the biggest trend or change of the past 10 years?
1: I mean, if we're just talking about gear, stuff got lighter across the board. Boots, binding, skis.
0: For inbounds and backcountry? and backcountry. I mean, it's not categorically true of inbound skier, right? Like, not everybody decide. I mean, I'm still skiing a head Raptor, which is the heaviest...
1: Yeah, I'm just saying companies put out... Like, there was a across-the-board emphasis on making things lighter in almost every category. Like, yeah. lightweight was the buzzword, I think, Well, I won't talk about predictions, So, (laughs) but I think things getting lighter was the trend. Like every year at Outdoor Retailer, it's just like, yeah, we started off the decade with a metal katana. We now have a carbon katana. Mm -hmm. That's a single example of a a big trend.
2: See, and and I agree with you, Luke. I think, though, that the 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 trend towards lighter is a direct result of what I what I wrote as the biggest trend, which is um, kind of like a, a little bit of a multi tiered thing. It's like actually skiable at boot slash the death of telemark skiing slash the rise of alpine touring, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and all of those things kind of contributed to you know companies making at gear. At gear needs to be light. And that light message trickling down through all the different marketing channels, um, but I think that all comes from the fact that people figured out how to make
0: skiable AT boots. I think I'm in agreement with Sam.
1: I wouldn't agree with the boot part.
0: I would. I, I think so. Again, this is open, you know, to debate. But I think the number one trend is the rise of backcountry skiing and at gear yeah and i think once engineers and designers started working on that problem it bled over into this like huh we can just lighten up some of the inbound stuff Mm -hmm. so i i'm i mean we can talk to and i'm sure we will hear from some engineers and designers to either say yeah that's the right story or that's not exactly how this went down but um Sam, it sounds like I think you and I are in agreement on this one in terms of the order, proper order of this. Yeah, because I mean, we we've had tech bindings. I mean, you look at
2: a dinafit, any dinafit binding is basically the same as it was thirty years ago. Like that hasn't changed. Skis, there's always been light skis. You just make them narrow and short, you know. Um, but boots were the were the were the sort of keystone of the whole thing. That's why everyone used to telly twenty years ago because it was kind of the only way that you could go touring and actually be able to get down mountains efficiently um so i i think the boot for me seems
0: pretty obvious um, unless i'm missing something but so i'm saying biggest trend and change is the rise of backcountry skiing sam is highlighting advancements in at boots sam is that what you're trying to identify Yeah, I think the, I mean, granted,
2: this is sort of like a, yeah, whatever. It's the advancements of AT Boots, in my opinion, allowed
0: for the explosion of the backcountry segment. And then Luke is talking about this continuing bleed into lighter gear everywhere.
1: Yeah, my focus was more just on gear, but I think it all stems from that rise in backcountry skiing.
0: Anything else in terms of biggest trend or change? I'd written down
2: tapered skis it's definitely not as big of a deal for the industry as a whole, but that's something that we really saw the rise of in the last 10 years.
1: Yeah. I mean, we see almost no skis these days, apart from like dedicated carvers that have no taper. Um, It's a very rare thing for that. But I also think the pendulum has kind of swung throughout just this decade. Like start with the JJ, look at the JJ now, they settled, they mellowed out the taper a little bit. And I think that's true across most of the industry. We don't see, we, I mean, I don't know if more than five truly reverse side cut skis anymore, like they're not really out there. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it rose and then mellowed out a little bit.
0: Thank God for the mellowing. (laughs) Wait, you don't like taper? Uh, It turns out. (laughs) Um, all right. Last question. Name one product, single out one product, and it could be because of its influence or because you think it's the best. Sam?
2: Well, this probably isn't going to come as a surprise given (laughs) my answer to the last question, but I think the Scarpa Mistrale is probably my product of the decade Um, for the doors that it opened and the products it inspired and the things that it allowed people to do um, without that boot, my decade would have looked a lot different. That's for
0: sure. Hmm. I'm sticking with shift. I'm sticking with the shift binding for the reasons I've said. I, It's the only truly game-changing product that I can think of in the past 10 years. Everything else has been iterations.
1: Yeah, I think I agree with you. I, I mean, we've seen advancements in skis and lots of changes but i don't there's not like one ski that stood out this decade that like cha- legitimately changed the game some influenced the design of other skis but and for boots i just yeah I, I i don't think i'm as on top of that as i am with bindings and i think i will agree with you but i don't feel good about it <laughs> <laughs> On,
2: on the subject of agreement, though, I'm shocked at our consensus across this podcast. Yeah. Like, there have been very
0: few disagreements. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm very eager to see all the people that disagree with us wholeheartedly. Yeah. Well,
0: I, don't, I mean, I, it strikes me it's going to be less about disagreement and just more about, well, I guess you can call that a disagreement. Yeah. But, and you know what, dear listener, don't just write a product, give us, make the case. Right, make the case, or we'll cross you out. Um, but I will. It will be really interesting to hear if it's like, look, you guys. I think we need to be remembering this mm-hmm. or that development, et cetera. And uh, okay, here's the deal. We are going to leave things here f- for now. We are going to be doing a written piece on the website where we will be asking more of our reviewers to weigh in and provide their answers. And so be looking for that later this week. Next week, what we're going to do is, given that we've just been talking about awards for the past decade, next week we're going to offer our gear predictions and general industry trends for this new decade. Then after that, what we're going to do is an episode. We're probably going to combine it where we're going to do awards for the past decade and predictions for the coming decade where we're going to focus on the snowboard side of things and also maybe talk a bit about apparel. So that is what we have in store for you. And uh, on that note, do let us know in the comments section to the show notes of this episode what gear would get your awards or you think deserves further consideration and um on that we'll talk to you later cool that's it for this edition of gear 30 thanks to sam and luke for the conversation thanks to luke alley for producing this episode and thanks to you for listening Now, remember to head over to the show notes for this episode at blisterreview.com to let us know in the comments what your nominations are and why. After you do that, please remember to take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.